You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for a show where the look at Australian films and Australian film industry on 3CR, your community radio station. And tonight, of course, the big news is that it's the opening night of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, But if you're a stay-at-home and you want something to look at, we're going to uh, talk about a film called The Plains. Uh, It's on MUBI, M-U-B-I. It was put on MUBI on April the 6th internationally and it was launched on MUBI for Australian viewers last month so it's there for you to have a look at david sdl i get to, i spoke to david about this extraordinary film you'll hear more about what it's about in our discussion so you'll get an idea of the uh, extraordinary nature of this film uh it was um uh in 2022, it was uh, called the best undistributed film by Film Comet. CinemaScope called it top 10 of 2022. That was It was the number 10 in that list. The BFI's Sight and Sound, the 50 best films of 2022, it was number 25. And the film stage, top 50 films of 2023, it was number 30. So The Plains is a fairly... Uh, extraordinary film. It's been flying under the radar, but if you want to find out more about it, keep listening. David Estiel, uh, interesting, interesting chap. Well, it's a pretty fascinating film and you must be quite uh, chuffed at the reception. It seems that people are falling all over themselves. It's been your first feature and all. Yeah, well, probably couldn't hope for um, much more in terms of how the film's received. But of course, you can only you know, control what you can control when you make a film. I mean, uh, you you do your best and, and you sort of release it into the world and, you, and hope it finds an audience. And it's been fantastic to see it, I guess, resonate with people all around the world. It's been extraordinary. It's curious, really, isn't it? Because I remember years ago when I was uh, flirting with the idea of making a film, I wanted to sit on a, a, um, a tram and put the camera outside the window and follow the tram's route. But this is a different thing where people spend an awful lot of their time in a car doing commutes, which is... Tell me about how you got this idea. Well, I think particularly, you know, Australian cities are quite sprawling and have a lot of the population using cars. So the, the car commute is, is 
a real thing. I mean, like every everyone uh, comments on the traffic in in Melbourne. So I thought the commute was quite an interesting thing to explore. At the time of making the film, I was looking at the very first films, and from the very first film that was made, or at least the first film that was shown in a cinema, it had to do with people leaving work. That's right. Um, it was the workers leaving the, the factory, the Lumiere factory. And, you know, looking at how a, a lot of people work these days, the, you know, you, you end at five and get in your vehicle and then start this process of moving across the city together with, you know, sort of tens of thousands of other people but quite separate from them. It was, it's quite a... I, I thought an interesting thing to to explore um, in a film, but the the genesis of the idea I think uh, was very much rooted in something that actually happened. I mean, I worked with Andrew, and we found out we lived near each other, and he started to drive me home from the outer eastern suburbs back towards where we lived, closer to the inner north. Uh, initially, it was looking back at this time that uh, we had spent together, and I'd gotten to know him, and it was dramatising uh, that year year of our lives. You do this really quite spooky thing, of course, which is that it's real people and real time, but of course it's not real time because it's three hours rather than a year. Well, I think film, you know, it tends to always be some sort of compression of real time, uh, unless it's a single take. And in this sense, yeah, it's, it's sort of finding out how to compress a year into a feature film and uh, the idea was to isolate it to just within these drives and just have a few drives throughout the year so that we could see the year passing in the light of Melbourne uh, and the sort of physical environment around. It's very much a part of the film, which was there from the outset because I, I recall doing this commute home and the light would just change dramatically across the year and it was something I was quite attuned to because I make films and you get these spectacular sunsets at various times of the year and it was very much a desire to sort of see that passage of time within a film but you know people uh, have attention spans and most films conform to a certain length and it's it's necessary to compress usually uh, in, in, in film uh, in some way. Yeah but it's, it's interesting because three, three hours is actually long and um, for a film, a feature film of any sort. But it's also fascinating to think that it keys straight into people's huge desire for gossip and linking into people's personal stories. That's what it does. I mean, it's quite fascinating because it's not boring at all, and it should be. Tell me about why it's three hours long. There's a reason for it. And as I said, it's not boring. Well, look, I mean, I didn't set out to make it any specific duration. I think that you should endeavour to make the film as short as is possible, really. Uh, and this is <laughs> such an expensive period of time editing this film, and this is uh, what I believe is the shortest it could be. Um, so for me, the, the duration uh, is a result of the editing process where I was working on the rhythm of the film, uh, looking at uh, the material I had captured through the shoot. That's what I, I realised and I, I was really thinking about, because, like, these are real people. How did you get Andrew to be part of this? Because he's an interesting person. Yeah, well, I guess they're versions of real people. I think um, Andrew would say he's, he's performing in a way, even if he's drawing from reality and, and me appearing in the film. We're, we're very much... Um, 
what's included in the film was shaped and scripted. It, even if it was drawing from events which might be quite contemporaneous or in the past, it's uh, it's not a straight document of them. So it, I see Andrew as giving a, a great performance. Uh, oh, wow. Because that I think is, he is performing it. That is amazing. Um, even, well, I mean, we're not uh, just putting the camera in the back and, uh, and, and hitting record um, over the course of the year. Uh, each month was, was scripted. I'd, I'd work out what was going to happen. Not the precise dialogue, which was the dialogue was improvised to give it a sense of authenticity, I think. To put, Andrew could put it in his own words, but the topics of the conversation, where it would go, it was shaped. Uh, and, and keeping in mind the whole time that this was a narrative work to be viewed from the start to the end and, and it had to work in such a way. So... I think he's very much uh, giving a performance, even if it's a performance close to who he is. It's a performance. I can't see it any other way. I got Andrew on board. Yeah, I think he was, um, rather than, say, casting an actor to play the the role of Andrew, per se, because there's lots of interesting things about Andrew which which were unique. I'm interested in how he talks, uh, his mannerisms, the way he kind of can say quite existential things next to, you know, really... um, and amusing, uh, often quite funny um, things. So the desire was there to have Andrew play himself because I didn't uh, necessarily think an actor could, I guess, sort of fill his shoes in in a way which I wanted for the film. Uh, Then my involvement in the film uh, was practical in a way because we had an existing relationship and it was a small crew, so Andrew could, I I felt, being a non-actor, a non-professional actor, be... uh, perhaps a bit more comfortable than working with a professional actor and also gave me an opportunity to direct the film where if you're using these kind of longer takes, um, me being actively in the film, I was able to sort of uh, try to exert a bit of control over the conversation as the shoot was going, as a, as a form of directing it. Can you tell me a little bit about your understanding of film? I know that is a sort of a blunt question, but what you're talking about and what you've produced is something quite extraordinary in a sense. How do you see film and what is it that you're aiming for? What do you want from it? Well, I mean, that's a pretty big question. Um, At its heart, I mean, I think I was going back to, you know, the origins of what, film was I referenced before think, looking back to the Lumiere's that it is a medium that I think is quite unique in its ability to record times passing uh, in, in it from a uh, in a visual way and an oral way so that almost this provide a resistance to the passage of time it's, it's its ability to record time is I think in essence what where the uniqueness of film comes about and of course nowadays particularly I don't know for the vast majority of people's taste and for commercial reasons uh, that ability is um, I guess put second to narrative progression in film where an emphasis in a lot of films that are made are, are effectively to film a story um, but for me I was interested in exploring that unique element of film to, to sort of explore its ability to record time passing. And that's where I was coming from with this work. I see it as 
quite an artistic work insofar as it was very experimental. I didn't know at the start of the project if it would work or what would work of it, what wouldn't work of it. It was, came from a desire to shoot something, thinking about these ideas and these concepts and seeing what would come out of it, rather than perhaps a more traditional way of making a narrative film where the film is in large part realised on the paper and then you will go about a process of shooting what's on the paper uh, to, you know, certain degrees of um, specificity. But, you know, you do have a, a, a blueprint firmly there and everyone's working towards that. And you often have to break it down in such a way that it's not shot chronologically unless you have great, you know, uh, freedoms and resources available to you. Uh, you, you structure a shoot and you'll go about and, and, and set about effectively filming what's on the page. But uh, this, I think, was a hope to maybe be a bit liberated from that and, and kind of see where it could go. And, and I think you could only work in this way if you are not making work which costs a lot of money because it's risky. Uh, it's inherently very risky. It's an experiment. And as the project went on, it sort of it grew and took shape in many different ways. But from the outset, there was only the, the simplest of frameworks, which was there from the outset, being what had occurred years prior, uh, the, Andrew's mother's uh, dementia worsening and her passing away. I was present over the course of the year where we drove together. This, this happened. And that was this sort of overarching event of the film that I knew going into it. But then through making the film, it really did evolve and take shape in, in many different ways. As we filmed over the course of 12 months, a lot happened over that 12 months that informed the film in, in different ways. So I think those were some of the ideas I was thinking about. I don't know if I'd always approach film this way, but... My name's Molly Reynolds and I make documentaries like Another Country and I support 3CR because it is a radio station that once you start listening to, you can't stop. And she is right. You're with Annie on Showreel and we're... Uh talking to filmmaker David Eastiel about his film The Plains. Uh, it received rave reviews from the trades when it premiered in competition in International Film Festival Rotterdam before screening at more than 30 festivals around the world. It hit numerous best of 2022 lists, often the only Australian film alongside Baz Luhrmann's blockbuster Elvis to make the cut and the five-star The Guardian Review called it an amazing work of art. Uh, It's been launched on MUBI, M-U-B-I, the online service. You can um, get a look at it there. Uh, It is a fascinating film. This is the last part of my chat with David Steele. So actually the year had already happened and then you revisited the year. Is that what you're saying? The year had happened many years ago, uh, ah. maybe about four or five years prior to the shoot, Andrew and I had worked together. And after that, we had maintained, I mean, uh, not a close friendship, but um, we live in the same neighbourhood, so I might see him. But then I conceived of making this film a number of years after we worked together and it started off as recreating or dramatising this time wow. uh, and, and drawing on these events that had occurred mainly around his mother's dementia yeah. worsening and also the other 
shape in the film was the character of the co-worker entering the film and departing, um, which was an, I saw as another means to give the film some sort of shape, that there'd be this friendship that grew over the course of the year and then a departure. But then a lot of the things which happened in the film uh, weren't known at the outset. It, it became a, a, a lot more, I think, complex because things would happen during the year that we were filmed that we would uh, incorporate into the film, not straight away. Like, for instance, during the course of the year, completely unexpectedly, Cherie's mother passed away, Andrew's mm. wife's mother. So this death happened during the year, whereas the death of Andrew's mother had happened a number of years prior. But again, when it features in the film, it's not documentary. We've thought about how it's going to be introduced to the film and how what's going to be said about it and where and, and these types of things. The film started to, it was important to, for me to remain open to seeing it take new directions. It's hard not to do that, even if you have a resistance to it. But when you shoot over such a long period of time uh, and you have so much time to think and so much is happening, it really did start to take shape in a number of ways, unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah, it strikes me that it's very Proust. It, it, I mean, I've just recently read Research of Lost Time. There's a certain element of that in this uh, idea, isn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, memory is a major part of the film. I, I think you get this, in, there's an intergenerational dynamic that we hear more about Andrew's memories as he's maybe moving more towards retirement. And it was quite interesting to me because... As I said, I didn't necessarily know how this would work when we filmed it, but you get these stories coming out in almost quite a therapeutic way. Yeah. Uh, uh, this sort of a so free association, which might happen in a process of analysis, for instance, which is kind of similar to the film where you're just looking ahead, you're not looking directly yeah, at someone. Yeah, that's right. And you get this, like, you get this secondary, you know, things might come into Andrew's mind and be said. And as a viewer, we get this view of what's, going on in the scene but then there's kind of this secondary almost imaginative view that we're getting this story of this past so yeah memory became a, a big um part of the film to me you know that it's a major part of who we are uh, our past uh, i guess it's it can be a great source of pain and it's certainly um uh, a theme in the film uh, the past and memory and, and, and time that's gone so in that respect, I wasn't, I can't say I was thinking um, explicitly of In Search of Lost Time, but um, yeah, maybe there's some thematic connection. One of the things that's interesting is that a modern art excludes uh, automobiles unless they're major pieces of uh, expressive art in themselves, you know what I mean? Uh, the everyday main, mundane uh, process of being in a modern car which is much less visceral than an old-fashioned car because, you know, old fa older cars, you know, you really knew you were in a car in the past. But now modern cars are like uh, on air. There's a, a certain disassociation in it. Yeah, I think it's a great place to film in in modern day. I think particularly in the commute, there's a, there's a real loneliness to the the car as this sort of vessel that just you kind of move through the city but you're separated from it and from everyone else yeah and i sort of wanted to play on that in a number of ways and i liked introducing the radio because mm. for me it became like a thought that 
there can be almost this discomfort to sit in silence in the car. And I'm not saying Andrew as a person, but in the film we played on this, that he would make phone calls. He'd call his mum, he'd call his wife, even if he was travelling home to to see her quite soon. And uh, Or if um, there was another sort of space that might be free, uh, uh, he'd put on the radio, you know, filling this space because uh, it can be maybe confronting to sit in, in the silence in this lonely, isolated vessel. The uh, image of the console is really fascinating. I started to watch the time change to see if the time really did change. You know what I mean? Like radio time, like a radio one minute's quite long and it, and obviously film one minute's long as well. <laughs> Yeah, I like it was kind of quite fortuitous that the clock ended up being there. We we shot in Andrew's real car, so it was never a well thought out production design piece or something like that that just happened to be there. But I thought it was quite uh, fortuitous. And I think for me, sometimes I I look down, I'm like, wow, so much time has passed, and not, you know, and other times it seems to drag a bit slower. You you can kind of really see in a visual way this sort of elasticity of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite quite strange, quite quite extraordinary, in fact. The last time um, movies decided to use a car in this way, not the same way, but dramatically, was um, that uh, Tom Hardy film when he was driving and all these different things happened. Do you remember that film? I, I know the film you're talking about. I've never actually seen it. Um, Lock is the title. Yeah, Lock, and I know that's right. Can, confined to a film, uh, a car. But I was maybe looking, a number of Iranian filmmakers shoot a lot in cars that, that I love. They do, I'm they sure do. That, that was sort of like a, you know, subconscious influence. I, I think it's quite a visual space to, to film yeah. in. Uh, it's very interesting cinematically. The other thing that was really fascinating was that sequence where you're looking at, at, at the tablet and uh, there was a Vim Vendors moment when... Um, Andrew's cleaning the windscreen. I just—I almost jumped out of my seat when that that sequence happened because it was so. There were so many layers of a distinct movement and framing going on at the same time. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah, I know what you said. I, I, I was quite happy with how that turned out, and in, 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 I didn't know if it would work or not. And a lot of things sort of happened right at the right time. We only had one take of that that drive, so we only got one shot at it. Thankfully, a few things lined up. I thought it was interesting bringing the, the tablet into the scene and sort of uh, it does bring a, an element throughout that whole scene with the tablet. It's, it's sort of interesting. It's hard to take your eyes off of the tablet when it's in there. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about why you have the sequences with the drones because it's like a, a quite a distinct uh, separation. It's a, it's like it's emotional as well as physical. It's quite unusual. Yeah, well, I just I really liked what they did uh, to the film. I, I introduced the, them in the in the edit. Where I think in the edit is a process of you have to be experimenting and trying things out. It's the last chance you have before you lock off the film. So for me, uh, I, I try to let go of ideas that I might have about what the film has to be or should be and and start being trying to be a bit more playful and seeing what options are available. And this was something that uh, we are introduced in the edit. And for me, it worked on a number of levels. And that's pretty much the reason why it's in there. Oh, and also, how long did it take you to edit? 
just as a matter of interest? Well, I was editing it whilst we were shooting over the 12 months because Ooh. it was integral to be looking at what we were getting in terms of I was having to write, you know, the next month's shoot and thinking about what could happen in the coming months. And, you know, throughout the year I was looking at the footage and thinking about things closely. From finishing the uh, shoot, it was maybe about six months of editing just exclusively before I had picture cut, if I can recall directly. That's, I think, maybe seems short, maybe seems long. I'm not for a film so long, but I think it's because I've been editing over the year that I had certainly the choices made in terms of takes, but then the edit came down to really finding the rhythm. And with so little edit, changing the in point, changing the out point uh, might seem like quite a simple edit, but it it, uh, could greatly affect the shape of the film. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, It's uh, incredibly dramatic when we go out of the um, sequence, you know, like we're in a time and in space and then suddenly it's changed. It's a new time. It's mm. the same. It's the same car, but it's a different time and a different place. And it's quite extreme. It's funny that it should be so such have such a big effect on uh, you as a viewer. I think that's really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, figuring out those points, especially over such a long duration, took a lot of time because you might tweak a few things and then you need to look at it as a whole. And when you're looking at such long work, it sort of that takes time in and of itself. What was Andrew's impression of it at the end? Well, I mean, from what he's expressed to me, I think he's quite happy with it uh, and, and proud of his work. Mm. And that, you know, I think maybe surprised and, and happy that a lot of people are, are seeing it and connecting with it. I don't think he he really anticipated, you know, that it would ever be seen like it has. Um, but I, I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of maybe speak too much to put words into Andrew's mouth. We still uh, communicate pretty regularly and he wants to be kept, you know, up to speed as to what, what's going on with the film and it's, it was a positive experience. It, it is a mean feat to be represented at 30 film festivals. I mean, it's quite clear that it's really struck a nerve. Yeah, I think uh, it must show when you hone in on just one car in that community and really get to know someone closely, then there's a common humanity or there that can kind of cross different countries around the world. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche. Many people say it, but the more specific you get, the more sort of universal uh, you get in a way. And it did involve Andrew, I think, and Cherie, willing to be open and maybe a little bit vulnerable to, to reach that authenticity that I think people can sense when something is authentic if that's the right word well yeah I think it is I think it is the right word because it's it feels like it's um I mean talking to you and uh discovering how much of it is crafted is quite extraordinary to me what does a filmmaker like you do next yeah what are you going to do well (laughs) yeah it's a good question I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that's right. And that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for talking to me, David. It's really quite a remarkable. Thanks, Annie. No, it was a pleasure. Yeah, and that was uh, David Estill. The plane sits on Mubi, M-U-B-I, the online service. Coming up next is uh, Published or Not. We'll go out with a bit of Emma Donovan. <laughs> Thank you.
way that you cut me. I've been drinking tonight. I got a lot to say. And I ain't gonna put up the fight. It's your turn to pay. There's no more tiring head first and all in two. I gotta think smart now. I can't play the fool. You think my heart's too hungry for someone like you? You think my heart's too hungry? Don't mean to break it this way. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.